23 years ago, I preached from the text that we're going to be start. We're going to start this morning, uh, getting into. And uh, as I look around the room, uh, there are a few people here that were there at that time. I believe that Carolyn Rayville was there on that particular day. For some reason, I remember you and Jerry being there. Uh, it was the longest sermon I have ever preached, well over an hour. It could have been an hour and a half long. Uh, and, and the reason was that is we were on the verge of, at that point, we had, uh, we had been a mission church now for about a year, and we were on the verge of becoming what's called a particularized church in, in the PCA. Uh, and that means that you have your own established in-house elders, so you have your own ruling body or session of elders. Uh, it was a... And let me just tell you, we're not we're going to take it little chunks at a time this time. I preached through this whole passage last time, and I was bound and determined to hit on every single point that was mentioned there because every single one of them was so important. What we're going to be talking about here is is we've just gotten beyond Paul talking about the the place of women in ministry. And now he's readjusted things again. He's gone back to men, and he begins here to address church offices. So what are the church offices? Well, the first one he's going to cover is, is called overseer, but you need to understand uh, the same thing as press, but, uh, uh, as elder. The two, the two titles are used interchangeably by Paul in a number of places, so we need to understand that there's not an office of overseer and a separate office of elder that the two are one. And then we have the office of deacon that comes after that. But before we jump into God's word, let me pray. Father, we come this morning, and we understand that the church is yours, that you've bought it with your blood, the blood of your son. And so, Lord, we come this morning just humbled uh, by the truth that we are included even as just a little part of that. And we pray, Lord, that the, or we know, Lord, that the church is very, very precious to you, obviously. There is no doubt about it. We can't doubt it for one moment. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how you have laid things out in more of a formal way. Uh, but, Father, pray that we would just be mindful of all the things that we studied in First Timothy up till now. And pray, Lord, that as we go through these verses, that we would take what we've learned and we would apply it, bring it together, make more sense out of it than it would otherwise. And again, Lord, we know that we can't do this apart from you. So we pray, Lord, that you would stir your spirit within us that we would hear with our physical ears, Lord, but we would hear also, even more importantly, with our, our spiritual ears. And then what you have to say to us, Lord, would settle in our hearts. Because, Father, we understand that head knowledge is important, but it can't stay there. It has to settle in our hearts for it to have the kind of meaning for us that we need for it to have. 
So we give this time to you and pray, Lord, that you would use it to your own glory. And at the same time, Lord, that it would be a means by which you would feed us, that we would be better able, better prepared to serve you, Father, in whatever capacity you call each one of us to, whether that be as church officers or as one of the laity. We know, Lord, that we're all called to serve you. You're the master. We are your servants. And, Lord, pray that every day you would incline our hearts to remember that and that we would be about our Father's business with every passing day. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Chapter 3 is where we're starting in 1 Timothy. I'm going to read the first uh, few verses. I'm not sure how far we're going to get. I'm I'm speculating probably only through verse 3 perhaps this morning. But as we begin this, I want to just challenge you with the idea. You may be sitting here thinking, you know, this really doesn't have anything to me, uh, to do with me. I can't see myself as ever being a church officer, either an elder or a deacon or, or anything uh, along those, that capacity. But I just want to challenge you with the idea. Let me just say this. I think uh, Presbyterians, I'm not going to tell you we've got absolutely everything right, but I really do believe that we've gotten church government right that this is the way that it's supposed to be done. Unfortunately, it's a rare thing that you find a a Presbyterian or elder-led form of government in churches today. Most churches have given up on this and gone off in other directions. But I really believe that Presbyterianism, this is an area that we have gotten right. This is God's will. This is God's purpose for for the formation and the... Uh, the ruling that takes place within a church body. And one of the nice things about it is this, is, is God ultimately, but through you and through me, through every person in this room, you will have some input, you will have some say-so as to whether particular men are received into the office of elder as well as deacon. You have input. So we all need to understand these things. These things are important to every one of us. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God's? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. It is a trustworthy statement. Uh, Literally, what it says here is, as faithful is the word, or the word is faithful. 
You're going to see Paul use this three times in this little epistle. He's already done it once. He's using it now. We're going to see him use it again uh, in chapter 4. But basically what he's saying to Timothy here is this, is I'm telling you the truth. You need to listen to what I'm saying. I'm telling you what is true. I'm telling you what God's will is. I'm telling you what God would have you believe and what God would have you practice. Just remember, back in the early part of the, the, the epistle, we learned that Paul was writing for a lot of reasons, but one of those was this, is that there were men in Ephesus where Paul had left Timothy who were teaching strange doctrines. So we need to understand that absolutely everything, every issue that Paul addresses in here at some point or another is related to that. In other words, there are issues in Ephesus as far as the form of church leadership. And Paul is telling Timothy that this is how things are supposed to be. Episcopate is translated sometimes as bishop. So if you ever hear the term bishop, it's the same thing as overseer. Now, obviously an overseer does what? They oversee. Okay. So it's real easy to remember this. They oversee, and in this particular case, what we're talking about is they oversee the governing, the workings of the church. And let me tell you, that's what Presbyterianism is all about. It's all about elders. If we are right in our Presbyterianism, there's absolutely no higher calling on the face of the planet for a man. And just remember this. That, that, that when a man is married, that whatever he takes up, his wife takes up right along with him because they are one flesh. So you need to understand, ladies, that you're included in this too. That as your husband comes, your husband serves, you're right there hand in hand with him. Because it's such a high calling, it is something to never be entered into lightly. In other words, it takes a lot of, of testing of character. It takes a lot of testing of the heart. We can understand that there are all kinds of wrong reasons why a man might desire to become an elder in the church. Maybe he likes to be very popular with the congregation or just with people in general. Maybe he likes to be one of those people who has power and authority and gets to rule over other folks. In other words, there are, there are wrong motives for this. But let me just say this, as Paul has written here, that, that if for the right motives, if the right motives are behind it, that it is something that is worthy of seeking. It's something that is worthy to be desired. It's a high calling, yes. But in essence, he praises men who have a desire to become overseers or elders in the church of Jesus Christ. And above all, Paul knows what it means to be one because he was not only an apostle. You could call Paul an elder as well. 
So office that is worthy to be sought after. Now, some people might say this, well, that doesn't sound very humble to me. You know, so-and-so told me they want to be an elder or, you know, I can just see this desire in, in this particular guy that, that he would love to serve as an elder. But that seems to me that that takes away any sense of humility from him. And, you know, there's got to be some sense of humbleness and, and to desire something or want something really means you can't be humble in the process. But you need to understand that that is not true. Otherwise, Paul would not say this. That there's a place for a man to say, I feel God's calling. I desire this office. Not for my own glory. Not for my own benefit. But for God's glory and for the benefit of his church. I'm convinced that God is calling me to this. And I think that I can serve the church well. But let me just say this as well, that no man can make himself an elder. There are sometimes people I think have tried to do that. But you can't. This is the job of the church. This is where you guys come in. He must also be called. Must be called by God to fill this office. So it has to be a desire that goes beyond self. It has to be a God-planted desire. So how do we know? How do we know if A man is being called to fill the office of overseer or elder. In a few weeks, we're going to be making nomination forms available to members of the congregation. You have to be a member of the congregation to nominate men. We're going to be taking nominations for a month for the office of deacon and the office of ruling elder. Uh, And on the nomination form, there are instructions, and, and, and part of those instructions include this, that you must, you must read 1 Timothy and Titus. Chapter 1 also has qualifications for elders, which is interesting because there's a lot of overlapping there, but there's unique ones to each one, so we need to understand something that Paul in neither place is giving us an exhaustive list of characteristics of ruling elders. Or elders. He's saying they need to be men with these types of qualifications. That you can see in them. That they live these things. That they breathe these things. That they believe these things. I just want you to know that because now that you, you can begin to contemplate... And observe, man, that you feel led to nominate to those offices. Once they're nominated, they will go through what amounts to about a year of training with me. That includes Bible and also theology and then some practical things. 
that it goes on for a whole year, at least. It could be a little bit longer than that. Some people might say, well, that's overkill. Why do you take so much time? And we take so much time because we understand how important that this is, that by the mindset of the officers, thereby goes the church. I love the PCA for a lot of reasons, and one of those is this, is they have, we have an expectation of our elders, and that is that they're knowledgeable men, that they know theology, that they can refute bad theology, because they also have a good working knowledge of Scripture. It's a class, leadership training class. I've done it now for I don't, I don't know how many times over the years. It's been a couple of years since, uh, since I've been involved in it. Uh, but there was a time when almost every adult member of Springs Presbyterian Church went through leadership training. If you have any idea of ever doing any teaching in the church, even if it's teaching children's Sunday school, we want you to go through this class. That's how important we think these foundations are. Once training is done, then these, these men will be examined in those two areas and other areas. And the session will meet with them. And when the session meets with them, it's not a matter of the session saying, you know what, these are the men that we want to be elders. What we do in that meeting is this, is we discern whether there is any good reason why we can deny your, no- your nomination. In other words, there's some reason that we know of that we, we just cannot support this nomination. And when we come to you with a slate of those who have been nominated, what we're saying is this, is you have nominated these men, we have trained them, and we find no reason to deny their nomination. You need to understand, this is a church where the elders do not determine who the elders are going to be or who the deacons are going to be. You do. Most of the time, you've done a very good job. There have been a few times when we had men come into office that without too much time passing by, it became pretty clear that they probably should not have. But I think that our record is pretty, pretty decent, pretty good in regard to this. And let me tell you, it's not the common thought. When I was in seminary, we were, we were encouraged by a number of our professors to handpick elders. For the reason that they would, then you would have people who would go along and do whatever you wanted to do. You would not have a lot of resistance to the, the policies and the, and, the, and the directions that you would like to take the church into. I had a guy uh, a few years ago say to me he was planning a church. And he'd been planning that church for four years. And he had not even started the elder training for the first time. And I asked him why. And he told me, because I don't want elders, because then I can't do what I want to do. I tell you guys, that's an absolutely wrong mindset about all of this. So just keep all of those things in mind as that, uh, that day approaches and we'll be open for nominations for a month. You'll have a whole month to, to turn those in uh, and all of that. So what are you going to be doing over the next few weeks? 
You need to be praying. You need to be looking. You need to be thinking. Therefore, the overseer must be above reproach. Now, when was the last time you used the word reproach in a sentence? I mean, it's one of those words that we all kind of know what it means, but I would imagine probably a lot of us have never used it one single time ever when we're having a conversation with anybody. So what does it mean to be above reproach? Well, we understand this, that none of these things can be true in an absolute sense because every man is, is a sinner yet, and, and so you're not going to see any of these things displayed in men perfectly. We all have the chinks in our armor. It's true of every single one of us. But what we're talking about here is a man who has, in a sense, an impeccable character against whom no charges of wrongdoing uh, can be established. Man of good character. And when you think about that, you would think honesty, truthfulness, things along those lines. A husband of one wife. Notice here, does it say a wife of one husband? You need to understand here that, that Paul is making a clear distinction. He's saying that this is for the men. These are men. Man of one wife. Now, there's been a lot of conversation over the years of exactly what Paul means by a man of one wife. There are people who interpret that. There was a very popular pastor. I, you don't hear much about him anymore a few years ago that I used to listen to, and I really loved most of what I heard from him. But then I heard him preach a sermon on this particular passage, and I never listened to another sermon he ever preached. Because what he said that day was this. It's what Paul is doing here is he's prohibiting any man who has ever been involved in a divorce from eternally serving as an officer in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, what do you think about that? He made it, in, in a sense, of becoming the un, unforgivable sin, that if you've ever been divorced, period, and, and there, was no, there was no ground gift for circumstances about the situation at all. No question if she divorced you or you divorced her. Were you a believer when you divorced or were you an unbeliever? No, no questions or anything. In his mindset, what Scripture's doing here is prohibiting absolutely any man that's ever been associated with divorce from ever serving as an officer in the church of Jesus Christ. And you need to understand that that is a common thought. Amongst, I've had conversations when I was in seminary with men who had this mindset. Circumstances matter. Now let me tell you, it would be one thing. It would be one thing if 
somebody nominated someone for the office of elder. The nomination came for us, and we knew that the man had just recently divorced his wife and run off with his, uh, and was hanging out with his girlfriend now. You understand that we would never approve a nomination for someone that was living in that situation. But at the same time, does a man always have control over this? What if a man's wife divorces him and she has no good reason for doing it, but she does it anyway? Can she do that? Is it his fault? Is he accountable for that for all of eternity? Does it make no difference? As to whether you are a professing believer at the time, and let me just tell you this, it it would be hard to imagine a professing believer pursuing divorce if reconciliation was even possible. I say this because you need to understand this is something I really struggle with because you're looking at a man who was divorced at one time. Most of you know that. It was a different lifetime. I was not a believer. I wasn't close to being a believer. And a lot of it was my fault. And when I went to Presbytery to interview for my internship there, I was expecting them to give me a really, really hard time about it. But, but as soon as they realized and understood that it was a sin that I committed when I was an unbeliever, then that was the end of the story. That when Jesus forgave me for my sins, he forgave me for all of my sins, absolutely every single one of them. I was starting afresh. You need to understand that there have been a number of men that have served as elders in this church that at one time were divorced. The circumstances make a big difference. Under what circumstances did that take place? And I just want you to know that we are a denomination that is serious about applying things rightly. One of my most favored seminary professors, man that I had respect for, I still have a lot of respect for, a few years ago, out of the clear blue, divorced his wife. And it was all investigated by our presbytery. And the committee doing the investigation came back and they they could not find any evidence. In other words, it it would have been one thing if she was involved in an adulterous affair or, or something along those lines. But there was no evidence at all of anything like that happening. And he divorced her anyway. He was defrocked. He lost his PCA ordination. So you just need to understand that we're a denomination that's serious about this stuff, but we know and understand that circumstances make a difference. When we look at, at rules and laws and regulations as being black and white, what we've done is we've just turned 
Christianity, again, into just another form of work salvation. You need to understand that. We're just legalists. By the way, there is a Greek word that is normally translated as divorce, apoluo, and it's not what Paul used. Paul doesn't use it here. It seems far more likely that what Paul is talking about here is polygamy, which was a very common practice in the days of Paul. Men having more than one wife. It's not something really that has become much of an issue in the, in the U.S. yet, but the way things are going, would it be too far-fetched to imagine that in not so many years that we would be struggling with things like legalizing polygamy in the U.S.? That, that's certainly a possibility, the way that things are going today. But, but there are places in the world where polygamy is still commonly practiced, and Uganda is one of them. And even though you and I don't have to deal with it, the, the missionaries that go to Uganda and places like that, they have to deal with it because they're going out, they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and men are coming to, to, to faith in Jesus, and then you find out these men have six wives. So what are you supposed to do? Pick the best one and just kick the other five out? Would that, that be the Christian thing to do? I mean, there's, there's biblical basis for doing that. You know, you're supposed to have one wife. But what they would say to him is this, is you can have only one wife. But when you're driving down the road in Uganda, you can always tell how many wives a man has because he has a hut for every one of them. So if you see a little group of four huts and there's a katubi, a place where they cook in the middle, then you know he has four wives. But you can only have one wife. But does that mean you take those other three women and just throw them out and not provide for them or take care of them or anything like that? Do you think that's what the missionaries were telling them? You just have to cut all the other three off or get them out of them completely. If you had any kids with them, they go with her and this, that, and the other. Now, can you be, imagine being a missionary having to deal with circumstances like that? Yeah, these, were, these men, over and over again, what they were doing is, is they kept one wife. They continued to care for the other ones in a platonic kind of relationship. The elders also to, to be temperate. Or sober. Not someone that is prone to excesses. Some things that come to mind is alcohol, drugs, those sorts of things, but it can mean all kinds of other things too. Very often when we think about temperate, we think about, about someone who doesn't anger very easily. In other words, someone that has a short fuse, and it's obvious to everyone that they do, 
They don't belong in the office of overseer. One who is prudent or self-controlled, sensible and sound in judgment. Let me just say this. I've known a number of men over the years. There's one person that comes to mind that some of you would know that was extremely knowledgeable, very knowledgeable in Bible, very knowledgeable in theology, in all of that, but you would not describe him as a temperate man at all. He was driven sometimes by uncontrolled anger. You can imagine General Assembly and Presbytery, sometimes we have very heated conversations about things, debates that go on. Not so much at Presbytery, doesn't happen that much, but let me tell you, every, every time... You have General Assembly, and you've got 1,500 elders coming from all over the denomination. And, and, and in general, in principle, we agree with each other on virtually everything. But when you get down to the little tidbits here, there, and yonder, there is great difference of opinion about things. And so we have some great debates. Presbytery, same kind of deal. The nice thing about it is this, is there's always those people that God has really given a great sense of prudence who stand out amongst everyone else. There's a particular guy that I knew for years. He planted the, uh, the PCA church in, uh, in Orlando, north Orlando, out toward... Uh, Okavi Springs, that area. Orangewood, if you know anything about it. Uh, he suffered from post-polio. His name was Chuck Green. He died just recently, just a few months ago. But when I think about prudence, as far as I'm concerned, Chuck Green was a picture of prudence. Because we would have these debates going on, and he served as our moderator quite a bit. He was very well thought of in our presbytery. But Chuck was one of those people, he spoke when he, when he needed to speak, and when he didn't need to speak, he kept himself. And we'd have these conversations going on, and, and somebody would be saying this, and someone else would be totally opposed to that, you know, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it'd go on for a while, and then finally someone would, would get wise, and they'd look at Green, Chuck Green, and they'd say, Chuck, what do you think? And then Chuck would just say a few words, and he would bring it all to where it needed to be from the very beginning. And let me tell you, we sorely miss Chuck Green at Presbytery. I mean, if you ever met him, he's one of those very, very special people that, uh, I mean, he suffered through a great deal in his life. And, and by the time he passed away, he was no longer really able to walk at all and, uh, and all of that. But such a sweet gentle-spirited person you have never met in your lifetime. He was prudent. He's also to be respectable. We all know what that means.
Remember the days when when kids used to always address older people as sir or miss, yes sir, no ma'am. Remember those days? How often do you hear that sort of thing going on anymore? Uh, I would say that our culture has all kinds of bad marks on it, and one of those is this, is there really is no place today much for respect of people in position or people of older age or people of different color or people of any difference. This, this elder person would have to be respectable not only to those who have authority over them, but those who are below them in authority. Not only men, but respectable to women and even to children. Part of their character. Yes, Larry. Well, I think you learn a lot of respect That's true. That is true. Unfortunately, there are a lot of us that have never done that. Uh, but I grew up in the Deep South. <laughs> in the Deep South, you learn to respect people, <laughs> either the easy way or the hard way. And with me, it was the very hard way. So, Also, it has to be hospitable. In other words, if you're thinking about nominating someone for office, one of the people you should, you should be thinking about this, are people welcome in their home? Do you see that actually take place is their home a welcoming place for other people that's a clue they understand something you know we all we all do this we do it all the time we talk about my stuff my car my house my this my this that my that and all that other stuff but this person a person to be hospitable they have to understand something and that is this basic principle, and that is that really nothing's mine. That all these things I consider to be mine, all these things I say that I own, they're all God's. And the only thing he's done is he entrusted me with his stuff to use it for his glory. So let me just tell you, when we're being hospitable to people, when we're taking people into our home, and we welcome them there. They know that they're welcome. They don't go in and they don't, they don't feel, you know, fidgety and afraid to say anything or do anything because if they do, then something bad's going to happen or whatever. They walk into that house and they feel like they're at home. And that has to overflow into the church, too. You need to understand that. Churches that have elders that are not hospitable are not going to be churches that are hospitable to newcomers coming in. They're going to feel very cold to new people. There's a story that's told that I I love this story. I heard it years ago. It's a true story. It took place in a Presbyterian church. And, and you know that the, the older Presbyterian churches tended to be a lot more rigid, a lot more traditional, and etc. The PCA really, in a lot of ways, has stretched Presbyterianism in, in that sense. 
Uh, but one of the things I love about the PC is you can find churches still in a PC. They're very much structured, traditional churches. But you get in and you talk, and they're good churches. Don't get the idea that that's always a bad thing. Now, it can be a bad thing. If their tradition comes be before everything else, like their understanding of what Scripture teaches, it's very easy for people to let, and churches, to let their tradition become their law. And almost lift it to the, to the level of Scripture. Anyway, this was in this very, this very, very formal church, Presbyterian church. And the pastor was in the pulpit, and he was preaching. I mean, the service had started. They'd already done all the singing. They'd already done most of the praying, and everything else was going to take place in the worship service. And the, and the preacher was well into his sermon, and he noticed and it was a big church. He noticed that the, the door to the Norfolk open, and there was a, a young man that came in. And he was one of those long hair hippie freaks. Long hair, no shoes, t shirt, blue jeans. Not the sort of person that would come into this particular church. So the pastor continues to preach, and the whole time he's preaching, he's kind of keeping an eye on that, that young man to see what he's going to do. And the guy starts walking down the center aisle. Shortly after that, he sees one of the elders has gotten up and is on course to intercept this guy. And the pastor's wondering as he's preaching, what in the world is going to take place? When he gets there, and what his expectation was, was this, was this elder was going to escort him out of the church because he was not dressed properly or because he didn't have the right decorum or he was late coming in or this, that, or the other. He was, in a sense, terrified of, of, of what might happen. But the young man continued on down the hall, the aisle. He got down and sat down on the floor right in front of the pulpit. And he, and he continued, he'd been listening to what the preacher was saying all along, and continuing to listen to the sermon, very attentive to every word the pastor was saying. And this elder keeps coming down the aisle. And the preacher's thinking, oh my goodness, what is going to happen? We're going to have this big scene right here in the middle of church on Sunday morning. That elder came up to that young man, he sat down on the floor beside him, and he spent the rest of the worship service there worshiping with that young man. That elder knows what hospitality is. Sometimes I wonder if anyone and everyone that appeared at that door would be welcome here. What do you think? I hope so. No matter what color their hair is, no matter what their age is, no matter what their background is, no matter what color their skin is, no matter if they're from some foreign country or this, that, or the other, every one of us desperately needs Jesus Christ just as much as everyone else does. And that's what we're all about. Let me say this. One of the things I hear, because I talk with people, 
And what I hear over and over again is when I come into this congregation, when I came the first time, I didn't feel like a fifth wheel. I didn't feel out of place. I felt welcome. I felt wanted. Let me tell you guys, as a pastor, I don't think there could be a greater compliment than that. One of the things I'm saying here, guys, is this, is the character of the elders will be reflected in the character of the church. That is one of the reasons why we must approach this with so much caution and so much care. Because the elders make decisions all the time that, are, that, that, that have an impact upon all kinds of aspects of church life. Well, we're going to stop here this morning. We have more ground to cover. We'll pick up there next week. We're not going to cram it all into an hour and a half or two hours.